You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're listening to conversations with two music writers. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from Eric Weisbard, a former music editor at The Village Voice and contributor to Spin Magazine. His latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. But first, we'll hear a conversation with music and pop culture critic Jessica Hopper. WFIU's Betsy Shepard talked with Hopper in August of this year. I'm Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Jessica Hopper. Jessica Hopper is a music and pop culture critic whose work has been included in numerous issues of DeCapo's Best Music Writing Anthologies. She is senior editor at Pitchfork and editor-in-chief at the Pitchfork Review. She formerly served as music editor at Rookie Magazine, where she still contributes, and has self-published several zines and music blogs. Her first book, The Girl's Guide to Rocking, was named 2009's Notable Book for Young Readers. Her recent book, titled The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic, was published in May to much acclaim. Thank you, Jessica, so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So... The deadpan and comically long title of your book is a good conversation starter, and it immediately addresses the fact that serious music criticism is still a predominantly male sphere. Why do you think that is? Well, it's not so much that criticism itself is a male sphere. It was very much uh, to call attention to the lack of formalization or canonization and recording of work by critics who are not white dudes of a certain age. The title is fairly accurate, but there have been other books, you know, over time, but not nearly the amount that there should be or that we need uh, in terms of documenting women's voices within music and culture criticism. And so the book, the book's title is just basically sort of uh, call attention to that because I was given a lot of reasons why this book couldn't or shouldn't exist by people within the publishing industry. And, you know, in their minds, there wasn't a gendered precedent. The women who are coming up alongside me are coming up behind me. I don't want them to you know, I want to do whatever I can so that they don't encounter some of those same roadblocks and arguments about uh, the value of their work. Is the title also something of a nod to Out of the Vinyl Deeps, the posthumous collection of Ellen Willis's writing? Yes. I feel like Ellen Willis, you know, who was in many ways one of the great inventors and expanders of rock criticism as a form. You know, she was someone who was almost entirely forgotten, in part because she left music criticism behind in about 1980. You know, but she was the first pop critic at The New Yorker, and it's surprising how many people just didn't know her stuff. I mean, when we talk about the sort of, you know, canonical names of rock criticism and, you know, that it's Lester Bangs and it's Robert Criscow and it's Grill Marcus, but, you know, she was someone who was very much in the room when rock criticism was birthed and helped drive the form and, you know, helped push Grill Marcus. And she was uh, Robert Criscow's partner at that time. And also, you know, as he says in his recent book, basically 
foisted the idea on him and drove him into it. And so she's someone who I'm really glad that there has been this posthumous awareness of her work and and that we're now getting multiple books. And, you know, she, she won National Book Award uh, for the collection. Her work gave me an idea that this was possible and also just gave me an idea that there was a a lineage, you know, a tradition of women within music criticism that I could be part of. Your book is a career retrospective, and it spans your writing from 2002 to present day. I'm wondering what the selection process was like for putting the book together. It was sort of a fairly dreadful approach initially, was that I just sort of started at the beginning. I'll just read everything I've ever written which is an incredibly humbling exercise for a writer because my work started being published when I was about 15, 16 years old. And so, you know, I went and got this giant box out of my garage filled with moldering fanzines and old clippings from weeklies or magazines. And, you know, there was not a lot of stuff from before about the age of 27 when I started writing for the Chicago Reader on a weekly basis and had an opportunity to dig into what criticism really was because all of my pieces before then were basically, you know, lots of times just making jokes or making fun of bands records or, you know, whatever. I was publishing in a fanzine, so it was fairly irreverent. You know, I think we initially called maybe 200 pieces and then got it down to 80 and then halved that. And so every piece kind of had to jump through a few hoops is this good writing, regardless of what it's about topically? Is this still a discussion we're having? Is this the best argument that I make about nostalgia or about image or about ambition? Is this still a discussion that we're having? And does it still have a place in sort of moving these ideas forward? And then grouping it together came sort of naturally once we had everything in place. I was wondering if I could get you to read an excerpt from the first piece in your book. I can do that. So this is a piece from what ostensibly serves as the introduction to my book, which is called I Have a Strange Relationship with Music. And it was originally published in my own fanzine, Hit It or Quit It, in 2002. And, uh, and this, is, this is basically uh, the closest thing I have to... The manifesto, which is why it's first. Dancing in pitch-dark rooms, rooms illuminated exclusively by the tiny light of the turntable, is an activity that fits very well with my ideas of, quote, rock critic behavior, which is like normal music fan behavior, but substantially more pitiful and indulgent. It's behavior that comes from an inextricable soul entanglement with music that is insular, boundless, devoted, celebratory, and willfully pathetic. It's my fantasized notion of what a real rock critic scenario is like. A special manual typewriter, ashtrays full of thin roaches, an extensive knowledge of Mott the Hoople lyrics, a ruthless seeking of the life of life and free jazz sides. It may also include a fetishizing of the truth, which always turns gory regardless of what records you listen to and detoured attempts to illuminate the exact heaven of Eric B. and Rakim or Rocket from the Tombs with the fluorescent lighting of your 3 a.m. genius stroke prose. And most of all, it's an insatiable appetite for rapture that cannot be coaxed by any other means. You present a very romanticized but also realistic view of the rock critic. 
Why did you choose that path? I mean, I started because someone told me I couldn't do this, <laughs> which when you're 15 is, is a general mode of operation. I was about 15 years old and living in Minneapolis. This is about 1990. And I was obsessed with a band called Babes in Toyland. And they were an all-female post-punk trio that was getting their start. And how they were being covered in the local music press in Minneapolis, they were saying, oh, you know, they're caustic and they're amateur and they're screaming and, you know, they're writing about it as if it was a bad thing. And I thought, well, isn't that why we turned to punk rock? Isn't that the liberation that we seek here? You know, they were the band that showed me that there was space for me within music. They were the first women I had seen on stage and kind of meant everything to me and that I was seeing them really kind of be misunderstood and in the ways that women's art traditionally is within the music press. And I had called a local music publication and said, so you've been covering Babies in Toyland and I know you just put out this article in the new issue, but I think you need to let me write a corrective. And, you know, they're like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 15. They said, have you ever written before? And I was like, homework, yeah, of course. And so they all but hung up on me. I think I waited like 10 days for somebody to call me back. And I just realized that's, that just was not going to happen, that I wasn't necessarily going to be taken seriously. And I knew it. And uh, so I decided I was going to make my own publication. And so, you know, I did what any enterprising punk teenager did in the 90s and made a fanzine. After about two issues of that and distributing that around town and all around the Midwest, people started asking me to write about music. And so I started writing for City Pages, which was the local weekly in Minneapolis when I was about 16. <laughs> it's pretty much gone from there. What kind of impact did the Riot Girl movement have on you? I was introduced to the idea of Riot Girl very directly by interviewing Kathleen Hanna on Bikini Kill's first U.S. tour. And I had heard a little bit about it, and I had heard about them through a friend who was booking that tour that I worked with at the record store. And it was maybe about six or seven months before the Riot Girl convention. And there was a sort of idea that Riot Girl was coming and people were sort of getting it together. And Kathleen gave me a copy of Bikini Kill Number no. 2 and I was absolutely floored by their performance and by her who and how she was on stage and the lyrics of their songs. And she gave me a copy of the fanzine and I took it home. And I, I couldn't really bring myself to open it. And I just sort of sat on my floor for about two days because I knew, I knew it was going to change everything. And I kind of had to get my mettle up in some ways. And I, I read it and I read about Riot Girl, and it basically gave a name and a framework to how I felt and how I was living and what I believed in already. And it was sort of almost like an organizing principle, really. I was involved for a time with the Minneapolis Riot Girl, which was just getting off the ground. I mean, it was incredibly galvanizing, and I think anyone who's familiar with what Riot Girl meant, what its aims were, the fundamental ideas of it, and how it empowered young women within music, I, I mean, you can absolutely see that as a through line in my book. It becomes a very powerful thing, particularly in music, when women have 
banded together to do anything, whether it's a band or whether it's, you know, the women who assembled that book banned in DC, which was one of, you know, the first formative uh, books about punk in America. And uh, I recently read an interview with Cynthia Connolly, one of the women who put it together, you know, someone who's very instrumental in the DC punk scene and documenting it. And she was talking about how when they first put it together, part of their goal was to make sure they included all of the women who were very, very active in the scene. And then uh, they even, once they put the book together, they realized they needed even more. And so they went through and blew up all the pictures of the women so that they were even bigger. And it's the efforts like that that have become a revelation and sort of spawned the big ideas of people who came after them. Many of those women were foundational inspiration to the women who then put Riot Girl together. In... 1992, Newsweek published an article on Riot Girl, mm-hmm. and um, they included excerpts with a 16-year-old Jessica Hopper. And one thing that the article seemed to go out of its way to do was to infantilize the Riot Girl movement. And I'm wondering if that spotlight by the mainstream media and misrepresentations of Riot Girl influenced your decision to become a writer. A lot of people had, at the time, had issue with that article for a lot of different reasons. And it was very much a serious spotlight. And the woman who wrote it for I Chidea went on to be, you know, one of the first women of color as a news commentator and, you know, later an NPR host and has written some important books on race and prison in America. But at the time, people could only see the big bad news week and the spotlight that it shined. And my thought was always basically any mainstream media is essentially going to get it wrong. It's a tiny punk rock underground radical feminist movement. And it has to be explained to your typical Newsweek reader <laughs> in the 90s um, pre-internet where we couldn't self-represent in sort of the same ways. And, you know, people had a lot of different ideas right then about what the media was doing to the punk rock underground, especially because of what was going on with, say, Nirvana or Green Day suddenly offering access to Gilman and uh, scenes in Oakland and Berkeley and beyond. And things like that, just all of a sudden there's a spotlight and there's an inroad and who's going to be the emblematic representation of this scene. And then you have a lot of people who are really mad saying, well, those aren't my politics. That's not my sound. Those aren't my choices. And this is being represented by somebody who has no business or investment in this scene other than this is like a trend and this is someone's byline for the week. My understanding of the media and how it works came from my parents who actually met here at IU. They went to J school together here. Both my parents are journalists. And I grew up in my mom's newsroom and my dad, uh, you know, 40-year veteran of news journalism. And so I grew up reading the newspaper that my mom worked on every day. And I grew up getting letters from my dad when he was, you know, in Nicaragua or Panama or Mogadishu. And so I feel like I had a fairly firsthand experience of what journalism was, which is, I guess, part of the reason that I refrained from referring to myself as a journalist until probably five years ago, 15 years into my writing career. It's not so much that I didn't 
see what I was doing as legitimate, but you know, there's a really, there's a really big difference giving something a rating and documenting what's really happening big picture in the world. Did something change in your definition of journalism at that time? Or do you think that your writing took on a new element? An editor that I respected greatly basically said, you got about another year before you have to call yourself a music journalist and not just a music writer. You know, that you have to hold yourself to a very particular standard. You know, you're not a kid anymore. And I took that very seriously. I had a trepidation of having to be serious and having to learn and abide by these rules. I didn't go to college. I just kept writing. And then once I had gotten kind of as far as those skills could take me, I realized I wanted to learn the rules of what I was doing, even if it was just to be able to break them better. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Betsy Shepard, and our guest today is Jessica Hopper, whose recent book is titled The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. Jessica, you write a lot about the term fangirl and how it's often been used dismissively to trivialize female perspectives on pop culture. And your writing consistently aims to to validate music's young female demographic. Can you talk some about your efforts to reclaim the term fangirl? One of the ways that we can invite young women into music is by appreciating the fangirl because historically there's this sort of myth of the fangirl that young women are not serious. We assume that they're into things because the person's image is cute to them or because they want to date the boy or be the girl. In 2015, online communities for women to discuss their interests in music, those are some of actually the safest spaces for young women where they aren't attacked for liking music in the wrong way or liking the wrong kind of music because there's very much this idea that there's sort of one authentic way to be a fan and that the one true authentic music is rock and roll, Bob Dylan is God, Beatles are the best band ever, and if it's not the Beatles and it's Led Zeppelin or it's the Rolling Stones or it's the Who. When we elevate or at least just respect fangirls, we can bring women into music rather than alienate them and marginalize them and tell them they don't actually belong here. And also, I was a fangirl, but I guess the music that I was into was considered legit because I was into Fugazi and The Clash and Public Enemy and not Taylor Swift. And so I got a different kind of reception and that reception gave me a career. What would be different if we stopped marginalizing women who are obsessed with, say, Ariana Grande and, and trying to like be like, that's not real music. She doesn't write her own songs. This constant sort of pushing women towards that there's only one idea of a way to be authentic with music and one authentic music and one authentic sound and that what women do and the music that they make and their image and all of that is fake. And so we never get to participate. We never really get to matter. We never really get to have a voice. There's a misconception that the fangirl is a passive consumer, and yet we see so many examples of young female fans that are actively participating in music discourse, especially on sites like 
Tavi Gavitson's rookie. Can you talk a little bit more about your involvement with them and other ways in which you've created opportunities for young female writers? I really wanted to work with young women and be part of the rookie community because it is one of the rare places in the internet where young women's ideas and individuality and discussion and voices are really valued and it really trusts the intelligence of young women and that's such a rare thing I mean historically but also now I mean you can you can basically point to rookie and maybe two other sites that do that I worked as music editor and uh, tried to introduce different types of music to the rookies fan base and jump young women into the idea that they can be music writers too that they can be more than fans and certainly a lot of the young women who were rookie writers early on have all gone on to uh, very successful writing careers do you see other examples of music criticism rock criticism pop criticism diversifying in other ways racially or in types of genre that it's covering Oh, absolutely. You know, with the advent of Tumblr and the ease with which people can get sites off the ground and with Twitter that we have a plurality of voices, whereas eight, ten years ago as a freelancer, you know, it really was about being in the good graces of the gatekeeping editor. And now as an editor, you are watching social media or you're reading blogs or keeping tabs on somebody's Tumblr and then say, hey, you're onto something here. Can you turn this into a piece for us? People who are 18 to, say, 27 right now, I think because they came up in an age of Tumblr, you know, people are used to having a very personal framework for how they analyze and discuss pop culture. And so I think that's why fundamentally race, gender, sexuality, and bigger ideas about culture, people are using those personal lenses to really drive the conversation about culture. And and it's so welcome. Those are the pieces that I love and those are the voices that I seek. It's interesting how technology is creating more space for people, and I'm glad that you mentioned social media sites. Another aspect of that, now music is instantly available through streaming services and stuff like that, and initially rock journalism kind of arose as being sort of a consumer guide, and I'm wondering how that changes the role of rock critics in the music discourse. Well, I think now we have a, we're prone to be a bit more reactive, we're very much living in the era of the hot take. A song comes out and you're supposed to have a fairly instantaneous, on-point reaction. Sometimes it's really great. And then other times, you know, we lose some of the nuance in the rush to judgment. Right now we're at a great time because people are sort of coming back to long form. We kind of overcorrected for microblogging. And now people are like, yes, I am willing to read something that's longer than 1,200 words. So I feel like we're getting into a pretty great era as far as music criticism, despite the fact that things have, have certainly speeded up. I'm really lucky when I can get about a month with a record, because sometimes there's a 
a wide scope of reaction that I'll, I'll sort of swing back and forth on. One thing that you see less and less of these days are bad reviews, the kind of bloodied knife dissection of music Lester Bangs and the, the old school guys were iconic for. So naturally, I began reading your book with the bad review section first, and I got a real thrill out of your willingness to take some punches, and I was wondering if you could read another excerpt for us. Sure thing. So this is an excerpt from your Miley Cyrus Bangers review. What is there to review when it comes to a Miley Cyrus album? Her singing, affected and perfected by software? How her powerless pop makes you feel deep down in your quivering soul? How to rate this latest iteration of her persona? How to address these complex matters of cultural ownership with a post-teen girl who's belonged to the public her whole life long? Her teenhood was a bigger emblem of the empire than Mickey Mouse himself. So what else could she do but to nuke it, saturate herself in our greedy gaze until she dissolves, give it all away, turn herself out until our knowledge of her is borderline gynecological? Is there a part of Miley that remains unknown? Did you really expect an album called Bangers to reveal anything to you? How does it feel to take down a record? It obviously inspired some really great prose. Do you think that bad reviews are important? I don't ever look at it as taking down a record. I pay the same intensity of attention to any record I write about, you know, whether it's lifting up Joni Mitchell box set or whether it's Miley Cyrus bangers. I bring the same thing to bear. You know, I mean, it's certainly not like, oh, I relish taking this down. I have the luxury of feeling fairly fearless about all of it. You know, I'm not afraid of Twitter backlash. I weathered some pretty immense storms and public outrage in my career very early on, even starting from, you know, the Newsweek article you mentioned. So I'm not phased by people's reactions. I I don't think so much like, oh, I'm taking someone down. I just try to make it be as precise and incisive as I can. When I have a piece come out and everyone just simply agrees with her, just says, good job. I often feel like maybe I didn't dig enough, that I didn't sort of get surgical enough with it, that I didn't get to the real meat. Because when I'm writing, I'm just trying to dig down. Why am I getting this feeling from this? Why do people react like this to Taylor Swift, to Grimes, to... Michael Jackson, to R. Kelly, and just dig down till I hit the actual marrow of the thing. That's all I'm really aiming to do, whether it's something that I love or something that absolutely undoes me. And in some ways, writing about things that I have a you know pretty negative feeling towards for moral or aesthetic reasons is, is almost easier. The evidence is usually a little bit more clear. When I love something, it can be a little bit more difficult. In the same way that you were trying to instruct people how to listen to female musicians differently, you also tried to instruct bands how to treat female audience members. I'm thinking in particular of the essay, Emo Where the Girls Aren't. You write about the misogyny and marginalization that you and other female participants experience in music scenes. 
I actually have an excerpt from that article that I really like. It's marked off. I imagine you want me to read it, huh? There must be some discussion, at least for context, about the well-worn narrative of the boy rebel's broken heart, as exemplified by the last 50-plus years of blues-based music, and that men writing songs about women is practically the definition of rock and roll. And as a woman, as a music critic, as someone who lives and dies for music, there's a rift within, a struggle of how much deference you can afford and how much you're willing to ignore what happens in these songs simply because you like the music. I'm wondering if in the interim time of you writing that article and now, you've come to any resolve. I mean, what happened when I wrote that piece was that it went from this nameless, lurking feeling that I was getting watching bands and then having this very specific moment of clarity during a hardcore matinee at the Fireside Bowl. And I just sort of followed that feeling down the rabbit hole, you know, what it meant for me, what it meant for other people. And I I had constant discussions about it and then kind of set it aside for about six months right in the middle because I really realized that there was going to be no going home again after that. What I was figuring out was sort of undoing my tether in a lot of ways, to punk rock, which had very much been, you know, at that point, my entire life for 10 years. And I was working as a publicist for independent bands and record labels. I was putting out a fanzine. I was writing for people. I was occasionally playing in bands. I was managing bands. I was doing all manner of stuff that I realized I once I put this piece out that it would make doing those things difficult for me, both in terms of investing in the scene, but also I knew from discussing the piece and the ideas in it with people before I published it. That's part of what I wrote about, is how freaked out people were by this idea of saying, I think this music isn't just descriptive, I think it's prescriptive. I think it's writing women out of the story. And in many ways they have been historically in punk rock other than at its you know very inception. I mean, not that I like resolved to that, but I haven't ever quite returned in the same ways. And, and I'm really much more choosy and conscientious about the ways in which I participate in music. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I need some sort of like a sanitized Whole Foods kind of experience with music. It's not to say that I'm not willing to encounter the parts of it that are difficult. I would actually say I'm pretty willing to receive the big picture of all of it and really make uh, informed decisions about how I think and feel about it. With more female musicians in rock music and also in punk rock scenes, has that made it a little bit easier to come back to? I mean, I think we very much are in a golden age of of women's participation in music. And I think what's happened more than there just being like, you know, this explosion of women being involved in music is that they're just much more visible. And, you know, that's one of the one of the great gifts of the internet, right? But that lots of times how we've recorded women's participation, the ways that women have often been marginalized in histories. I mean, if we just think about all the music documentaries we've seen, particularly about independent music in America and beyond, you can sort of spot the token woman. But we always and forever have, you know, Henry Rollins, as the as like the spokesperson. I always want to continually assert that there was a lot of women here before us now who 
made the participation of the women who came after them possible and empowered it and endowed us with a sense of permission. I think what has changed is largely the archetypes, what kind of women we are allowed to be or what sort of female identified person or what sort of fluid person we want to be. Because for a very long time, particularly even 20 years ago, you could either be the Joan Jett or you could be the Joni Mitchell to just take the sort of like virgin whore dichotomy even further, you know, with a guitar. And I think we're allowed a lot more space and a lot more roles. And we can look at someone like Annie Clark from St. Vincent you know, and she's very much our Bowie. And I, do, I don't know if we would have necessarily allowed a female Bowie even a decade ago. I think slowly but surely we're moving towards a sort of post-gendered rock music and towards an idea or an understanding where women aren't forever portrayed as interlopers or newbies or you know, going against the grain of men's rock and roll. And this year, the big trend is women. You're like, yeah, we've always been here. Your book includes a 2013 interview with Chicago Sun-Times reporter Jim DeRogatis about his breaking of the R. Kelly sex scandal. And more recently, you interviewed uh, Jason Cherkis mm-hmm. about his article in which Jamie Foxx of The Runaways recounts her rape by then-manager Kim Fowley. And there are too many examples of great artists who behave reprehensibly. And I'm wondering if faced regularly with the good art, bad person dilemma, you've figured out how to navigate the issue. All the stories that are never given credence because we think that young women are basically a reward for a show well played for the male musician and that young women should know the rules, and that if they're there, if they're fans, if they're in the front row, if they get backstage, they're fair game, and they should have known better. You know, because we've relegated women to that role for a long time. Because of that, because I understand that history, because there have been half a dozen stories like that that I've tried to report in my career and can't for different reasons, I'm really, really conscious of how I participate and that I don't look away from these things and that uh, I now try to dig in wherever I, I can. These are essential discussions that we must have around music because they're some of the ways that women are, are most consistently marginalized. And, and also the, we see right here the real effects too of you know the hierarchy of the male artist and, and how his art must always be preserved and maintained above all. And so everyone else gets kind of small in relation to that, particularly young women. Being trusted to dissect a moral quandary about a pop record is the real thing that I, that I cherish that opportunity. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Jessica Hopper. Thank you for having me. This is Betsy Shepard for Profiles. Thanks for listening. That was WFIU's Betsy Shepard speaking with rock critic Jessica Hopper. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. 
I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're listening to conversations with two rock music critics. For the second half of the show, we'll listen to an interview with writer and editor Eric Weisbard. WFIU's Mark Chilla spoke with Weisbard earlier this year. Chilla, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Weisbard. Weisbard is an author and music journalist. He is a former editor and contributor to both Spin Magazine and The Village Voice, and he's published a book on the Guns N' Roses albums Use Your Illusion for the 33 and a Third music series. Currently, Weisbard is an assistant professor of American Studies at the University of Alabama, and he is known for founding and organizing the Seattle-based Experience Music Project Pop Conference. The EMP Pop Conference is a place for pop music scholars, critics, musicians, and fans to share their views and research. Weisbard's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. The book is a critical examination of Top 40 radio, and in it, Weisbard looks at the ways that Top 40 has shaped our musical culture and artists over the years. Eric Weisbard, thanks for being here today. It's a pleasure. So first, uh, let's clarify. When you refer to Top 40, what are you referring to? I'm, I'm basically talking about the world of playing hit records on radio for an audience that advertisers are willing to pay to attract. Now, in the 1950s, Top 40 was only one thing. It was all the hits for as many people as you could possibly gather. AM radio, crazy madcap DJs talking as fast as a rock and roll song with jingles, and and everything was just like boom, boom, boom. (laughs) My book follows the story of Top 40 one generation later. In the late 1960s and into the 1970s, music radio moves from AM radio to FM radio. It takes about a decade for all the people driving cars in America to switch from cars that have AM to to cars that have FM. And in the course of that, that's where the music goes. And Top 40 goes with it. And it stops being one category, and it starts to be multiple categories. Now you have a set of hits that are aimed at African Americans, and it's soul radio or R&B radio. Now you have a set of hits, and it's aimed at white Southerners or, or folks who identify with that music nationally in its country. Now you have music aimed at older listeners, and it's adult contemporary. Um, now you have rock radio aimed at the counterculture people. So suddenly, instead of there being one kind of top 40, there's five. And basically, my book is about the world that's made when you get five kinds of top 40 simultaneously attracting different Americans to different musical stories, but all at the same time. You make a distinction in your book between radio format and musical genre. So what's this distinction, and are they at odds with one another? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that we often constantly have the same battles over pop music um, saying why is pop music so bad or why is pop music doing this and not this is that we get confused about two things that are similar but ultimately very different. Music genres are 
in theory about finding a particular musical form and going after it. I want to sound like a rocker. I want to have music that fully rocks and everyone who loves rock has a certain sound in mind and they can judge whether something's rock or not. That's a genre idea. A format idea is I want to reach some people who like rock. If those people change their mind about what rock is, I'm fine with that. And so my ideal at that point is not about a set of sounds, it's about a set of people. And essentially, if you want to say music should be about pursuing a set of sounds, you're a genre person. If you're interested in how music reaches a set of people, you're a format person. And while music fans often ultimately prefer the sounds, the argument of my book is to demean the people is a very dubious thing because essentially what's happening with formats is all different kinds of people are being addressed by music and why should we um, tell them that what they like is doesn't matter? If they like it, it probably does matter. Uh, so Top 40 Radio for many listeners, it has really pop in general, has often has this connotation of being kind of fluff or filler or background music, not a very cerebral experience. And that's one of the things that you argue, uh, argue against in your, uh, in your book. So what can we learn about music and music culture in general from Top 40 Radio? One of my one of my sort of slogans in this process has been like when a when a bunch of songs all sound the same that's not a problem it's a clue you know you know essentially um, when when a lot of things sound alike that's telling you something about what's needed and so sometimes maybe we should flip this and instead of protesting against why for some period of time there's repetition we should actually you know see that as an advantage, see that as, ah, all right, if there's 10 songs, you know, by different people that all have a certain texture, that all reflect a certain sensibility, maybe this is telling us something about what's cohering socially and culturally. And so I love moments when the radio sounds the same, because it means that I'm more confident in my conclusions about it. <laughs> it works really well as a, as a researcher, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the history of Top 40 Radio a bit. Tell, take us to the, the diner where it all started. Uh, yeah. I mean, in some ways, to this day, Top 40 confounds music purists because it started with not a radio, but a jukebox. It started with radio guys sitting in a diner watching a waitress at the end of her shift put her own money in the jukebox to play the same songs that the customers have been paying for all day long. And the radio guys are looking at this woman somewhat condescendingly. There's a, there's a certain element of sexism to it, but, no, but nonetheless, commercially, strategically, looking at this woman saying, you know, you can't overplay these songs. People really do want to hear a small number of songs again and again and again. And the lesson of Top 40 has been that when a song is in people's heads, they want to hear it. They want to hear it over and over and over for as long as it takes for that song to become an indelible part of their lives. And to this day, Top 40, when it follows that model, has been successful. We see that not just at the beginning of the story with the jukebox that then informs the radio guys who say, let's just do a radio station that's like that jukebox. We see that now with satellite radio. When satellite radio launched, one of its selling points was we have so many more stations devoted to music. We could have a station about music from the 1940s. We could have a station on just 
hip hop songs that are that are a certain kind of southern hip hop. Whatever you want, we can do it. And they put all these things out there. And what was the most popular thing by far was the station that played the top 20 songs. Not even the top 40, 20. So that proved by far to be the single most appealing choice in a uh, context of quite a lot of choice. So again and again and again, we find that um, there is something absolutely attractive to people about having this small number of songs that they share with other people, that they that they hear again and again and for a time of their life become central. Even if that changes and the, and the set of songs five years later are a different set of songs, mm-hmm. people like that process. Yeah, so you talk a lot about in the book about kind of like the golden age of top 40 in the 70s and 80s, but I guess it's still alive today then, yeah. Yeah, there's there's several golden ages of top 40, if you want to put it that way. The first one was really the era of the Beatles and the British invasion in the mid-1960s. That was kind of the high watermark for that AM radio top 40. In the 70s and 80s, the success of on FM radio of these different kinds of formats was really, really important because what it was doing was it was letting the world know that different groups of people who might have been marginal to commercial culture before had to be taken very seriously as publics. And now you have this um, afterlife of Top 40. Radio itself is fading a little bit. Radio is not the choice of most young Americans. There's um, all kinds of new things that are radio-ish, but not actually radio, like Pandora. And yet, in this sort of shrunken context for radio, even now, the top 40 hits approach has proven to be the single most enduring category. So so the hits to, to of different kinds approach, the thing that started it all, is almost going to be the last category of radio left standing, at least for music radio. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Mark Chilla. Our guest today is Eric Weisbard. Weisbard's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, and it examines the history of Top 40 radio and its intersection with culture. So, Eric, one of the groups you focus on in your book is the Isley Brothers, an R&B group whose career stretched from the late 50s to the 1970s uh, and even beyond that. So, actually, let's hear some of the Isley Brothers right now. Uh, their first big single, Shout, from 1959, and one of their biggest hits, uh, Fight the Power, from 74, I believe. Well, you know you make me want to shout kick my heels up. big shift in sound there from the 50s to the 70s, almost like two different groups completely. So what makes the uh, Isley Brothers an interesting subject for study? First and foremost, it's the longevity. This is a group of brothers who start in Cincinnati, and it's World War II era. 
Um, they are coming of age alongside the civil rights movement, alongside rhythm and blues feeding into rock and roll. But they're still going. Forget the 1970s. They have a number one hit album as late as 2003. Really? So 44 years later, helped out by the fact that lead singer Ronald Isley becomes a character in R. Kelly music videos, Mr. Biggs, the Isley brothers are continuing to be viable in an era of hip hop. This is a massive generation, multi-generational narrative. And what the, the story of the Isley brothers can tell us is first and foremost that this is the story of rhythm and blues. Even before Top 40 was a concept for radio programmers, there were black-oriented radio stations, the first one in Memphis in 1948. Billboard, one year later, not coincidentally, comes up with a new chart that it calls Rhythm and Blues. Um, and it's the music played on these black-oriented radio stations. To this day, all these decades later, there is very much in the United States commercial programming aimed at a black listening public. So this music that was made in this corporate way in a segregated context proves really enduring, not just for the band, but as a category, as a set, as a repertoire, as a way of making music that emotionally has connected to black audiences for, gosh, you know, almost 70 years now. Uh, you also focus on Dolly Parton, and you talked about country, so let's kind of move on to this. She's another artist whose music and image was sort of shaped by radio, but in a different format, in country. So what was Parton's relationship to Top 40 Radio? Country is interesting because, once again, country like rhythm and blues predates the Top 40 system. You think about something like the Grand Ole Opry. Starting in the 1920s, it's already a radio staple aimed at southern, working-class, white, so-called hillbillies. And so the weird story of country music that intersects Dolly Parton's life is how do you get to have it both ways? How do you get to be modern and be traditional at the same time? And when you think about Dolly Parton, she's the embodiment of that. On the one hand, she can be Dolly Parton, who sings Coat of Many Colors about growing up poor, and her mom fashioned her a dress out of rags, and here's a picture of the actual dress, and it's on the cover of the album. Nothing could be more authentic. I actually have that song. Let's, uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of that. seasons of my youth I recall a box of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to use there were rags of many colors but every piece was small and I didn't have a coat and it was a way down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of I mean, that's a totally great example of country music as a genre. That would be perfect if you wanted to sit or say, do you love country music? This is, this. here's a song for you. But Dolly Parton's also country music as a format. She's the person who wrote I Will Always Love You. 
Let's listen to a little bit of that. I have that one queued up as well. I will always love you. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I know I'll think of you each step of the That, my friends, is country as a format. That is essentially country music starting to develop the category loved by radio that we know as the power ballad. Country music, this is my argument, is always doing two things at the same time. It has to move into the future while rhetorically looking back at the past. It has to be a pop category, which is to say it has to be contemporary, but it can't lose its identity. It has to have the borders around it that let country persist. And so you end up with this funny balancing act that country constantly stages. And women in country music are the most controversial figures start to finish, partly because men in music are often the embodiment of authenticity. Think about Hank Williams. He's by far the guy who um, in country music as a genre, you ask, would Hank have done it that way? You don't ask that about the women in country music. They tend to be the figures taking the category into the next pop um, phase it needs to go to. And they bear the brunt of, of that. They get scorned. They sometimes get pushed out. But they're doing this important work. And so one of my arguments is not just that we should re-see country music, but we should see women as far more central to country music's longevity exactly because Often, they're the ones who dare to tweak tradition. Let's talk about radio in general. It seems every few years for at least the last 60 years, someone is declaring the death of radio. It, it died in the 1950s when television came about. It died in the 1980s when MTV killed the radio star. It died when satellite radio fractured it. It died when the internet came around and introduced Napster and Pandora and Spotify. But here we are, and you and I are talking on an FM radio station. So is radio ever going to die? It's a, it's a fascinating question. I mean, one of the questions is, will radio die? The other question is, what will happen to this format process? I think that it very well may be the case that the specific idea of a set of signals being transmitted through the air to a geographically limited um, range of people listening either on home devices or in a car, um, that that may go away. You know, I mean, I, I think that like anything else, change will come. What I don't think will go away is the two things that radio is about. One, simply disconnecting sound from visual and the way that um, that gives us a particularly intense experience of certain kinds of um, listening. And the second is this development of using radio to 
give us 24-7 places we can go to that feed us a sense of the world sonically that's about how you talk, what songs you react to. So those two things, the the intimacy of, of listening through radio and the way it carves out particular people and makes them feel at the center of things, those two things, if they go away, I'm going to be very disappointed. Having studied Top 40 radio uh, so intensely, where do you hope music broadcasting will go in the future? Huh. I guess the truth of it is that I'm mostly interested in the playlist side. I'm interested in how playlists remain at the center of music. To this day, one of the developments with social networks like a Spotify and stuff is people share playlists with each other. It used to be that a playlist was something a radio station kind of imposed on listeners. These days, everyone wants to see, wants to get in on the, the process of creating their own playlist, sharing those playlists with others. And so I think that much like I enjoy the fact that YouTube has meant that you don't just punch the jukebox, but you can make your own parody version. I like the I like the notion that this all is going to get steadily more interactive, that we're going to be kind of not just having a top-down, top-40 democracy, but a whole lot of grassroots, that there's something still vital and valid about driving with the radio on, an AM hit playing, and the world is a sea of possibility. Eric Weisbart's latest book is called Top 40 Democracy, The Rival Mainstreams of American Music. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. It was delightful. Thanks for such great questions. That was WFIU's Mark Chilla speaking with music writer Eric Weisbart. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.